everybody. Mike and Tim here from the Vox Podcast. So grateful you are tuning in. And as always, we're grateful to be a, a small part of your life. We have kind of a fun show today for our 201st episode. 201. Uh, 201. Uh, there is, so there's a, a, a scholar that I have um, been, have read in the past and have quoted him a couple of times on the podcast. And anyway, through a really random cool of a, a series, the cool series of events, he and Bonnie did an event in Orange County together. And through that, I was able to get connected to him. And so uh, today I've got uh, about an hour long conversation with Tim Gombus, PhD. Uh, who um, is a Pauline scholar, Pauline New Testament scholar, and we're going to talk about just misunderstanding Paul. And so one of the, you know, one of the big things that, I th- uh, you know, besides the Old Testament that really provides a stumbling block for people is this Paul guy just it doesn't make a ton of sense in some places. And how, what's the best way to approach him? And, and what was he like? Because he gets painted as this kind of super angry, woman-hating, sex-hating kind of guy, and that actually isn't the truth. And and so anyway, it, it's a fun conversation. It's a relationship um, that I hope to develop with Tim. He's, he's such a good guy, very thoughtful, very pastoral, like very involved in reconstructing faith. And um, I'm it's hoping a good, strong name, Timothy Gombus. Absolutely, dude. That's you know what that says. That says I am here. I know different languages, and um, my you can't box me in ethnically because you have no idea what Gombus is. I wish I, Timothy Stafford had the same kind of connotations to it, but it just doesn't quite hit the mark. Yeah, but, but let me tell you, if you're going to be a musician, you don't want Tim Gombus as your name. You want Tim Stafford. Like I don't Tim know, Stafford, be a good band name. Gombus, yes, ladies and gentlemen, Gombus. All right, now Seth just walked into my office Hi. with a face full of cake. Seth has eaten almost half a cake this morning, unbeknownst to us, <laughs> that was left out for Nate's birthday. So if you were to look at Seth, he has cake in his nostrils. Yeah. He has cake on his shoulders, right? Yeah. How was that cake, Seth? Good. It was good cake? Yes. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so he's sitting here looking at Tim with a smile, with, with a sugar... It's a sugar-induced coma. All right, buddy. See you later. <laughs> it's pure sugar joy. Yes, it is. So anyway, Tim Stafford, I think, is the way cooler, like, like musician artist sort of name. So let, let's just clear that up. But here's the the big thing I want to talk about is Tim Gombus was um, was kind enough to say, hey, let's do this again. And so one of the ideas we have is to make that sort of a regular semi-regular feature um, where we can talk through very specific Paul issues um, and uh, and go through some texts and stuff. And so I think this will be fun. This is a very fun introduction to him. Um, talk about a couple of his books that you might want to check out. But anyway, hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, had a great time doing this. And so different from the future of the church stuff we've been doing, this is more, uh, why is Paul so misunderstood? Welcome to the show. Today, uh, I have the very great privilege of interviewing somebody that um, I've been eager to talk with for a long time. Um, He's just done an event with uh, some mutual friends out in California. He's been a scholar I've referenced a couple of times on the podcast. Um, This is uh, Timothy Gombus. Tim, say hello. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, Tim Gombus is... um, and and I know this is so cheesy to say, but he's he's drastically underrepresented, underrepresented in popular thought. This he's written a couple of books on Paul that um, I I just found wonderful. I want to mention them real quick. Paul, the first one I found was Paul: A Guide for the Perplexed, which I think is it turns out to be everybody who's ever read the Bible, um, and so. So really, really good stuff. And then the one that just slayed my heart, uh, and I know I'm fanboying a bit here, but um, it's called The Drama of Ephesians. And um, if you ever, if you're, I know we have a lot of ministry, uh, like paid folk who listen to this. If you're ever teaching or studying Ephesians, please read that book. It is so good, called The Drama of Ephesians. So anyway, uh, 
Timothy is a scholar and he's a cool guy. And so we're thrilled to have him. We want to talk about Paul today. Um, there are no, no shock. Um, there are all sorts of, uh, schools of thought about what Paul is attempting, what he's doing, how, how he writes and why he writes what he writes. And so I'd love your take on some stuff if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Um, what, what first drew you into, into him as a a figure of, uh, worthy of study and attention? Just mm. was it the biblical material? Was it him as the person? Was it the misunderstandings you saw in church culture? Uh, let's see here. So there's this common trope that goes um, among biblical scholars when we, we meet each other. Uh, we'll typically say <laughs> something like, uh, hey, what's your area of study? And uh, I will say, I study Paul. And inevitably, the response is, oh, great, another white guy studying Paul. And because um, I think that in our tradition, in a conservative evangelical tradition, Paul is the, he is the one, he's the person that said it the way that we say it. He's the one who represents all of our own convictions. And that's because we read his letters and we hear ourselves back because he writes so personally. And I think that that was my experience growing up in the church. Um, And then when I really began to take my faith seriously early on, in my college years, um, I read uh, one of the first letters I studied was Ephesians. Mm. Just reading it over and over and over and over and over. My Bible's all marked up from my, my that I had in college. Um, got into First Peter, a couple other texts, and when I was a sophomore in college, uh, over about a year and a half, I read Ephesians constantly. And I read through the eight volumes of sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Oh, wow. And uh, that uh, so powerfully shaped how I thought about so much. Hmm. Um, and uh, when I went to seminary, so 25 years ago this fall, which is hard to believe. Uh, when I went to seminary, I fell in with a bunch of um, evangelical, uh, conservative evangelical reformed folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of people that would be represented by the gospel coalition. Right. And, um, yep. I began to be exposed to a bunch of mysteries in Paul or, or contradictions that I could not explain. Mm-hmm. So just to back up a little bit early on in my Christian experience, when I began to take my faith seriously, I just, just devoured my Bible. I just read it. I just read it so much and not a lot of other stuff. Uh, before I read the Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons. Um, And what I mainly read was Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. And then the Psalms and Proverbs, but just loads of Deuteronomy. Hmm. And began to see uh, that my inherited understanding of like an Old Testament God who's angry, just felt that just that was dispensed with. But then also that uh, the law is this hopeful, promising unbelievable gift that God gave to Israel. Hmm. And, uh, and the Psalms celebrate that as well. So anyway, fast forward a couple years to 1994, and I started seminary and fell in with these folks studying mainly Romans and Galatians. <laughs> um, they, I was, it, it was, I mean, these were texts that I was not terribly familiar with. I, I hadn't studied as much as I had read Ephesians and Philippians, first Peter, James, etc. And the, the, the assumption was that Paul sees the law as this terrible thing. It terrorizes people. Yeah. Uh, it shows us our sin. It drives us to Christ. It show, and, and all this stuff, and it's, it just damns humanity. And it's just this horrible burden. And I, what gripped me was the question of how could God say one thing about Scripture or the law in one part of the Bible and say something totally different in another part? I could not get my head around that. And I just, um, uh, I think that formed in me um, the sense early on that our culture that loves the Bible, loves the Bible, our culture that loves, loves, loves the Bible, um, it has inherited uh, and sort of uh, possesses 
loads of assumptions about the Bible that just may not be so. Hmm. Um, and so it started a posture, not of cynicism or hatred or dismissiveness toward my inherited evangelical culture. It, it instilled in me this posture. Yes, we all do love the Bible and I love you people, but we say a lot of stuff that's just not in there. Mm. Um, and so uh, I just, that's kind of how it, my posture began. Mm. And I began to uh, go at some of Paul's texts um, with the question, what if he's saying something slightly different? What if we're mostly getting it, but it, it has different contours or nuances? Mm. Um, and that's, I've, you know, we, we uh, this evangelical culture that uh, sort of knows Paul so well, I've discovered we just don't know this person at all. <laughs> and, um, and it's not that he's way different and terrible. He's way better and more hopeful and more promising and more life-giving and also more mystifying uh, and more uh, troubling. Yeah. And I think if we read the, the record of Acts and some of the statements in his letters, more ornery. Uh, and it's <laughs> a good Midwest word. Yeah, totally, man. And a lot, uh, I'm not, you know, another thing that we have in our evangelical culture is this exaltation of celebrities and superstar preachers. Um, I, and we see Paul as one of these, right? He just was not, no, he tells the Corinthians, I know what you people are saying about me. Yeah. You say that I talk big in my letters, but when I show up, you can't even hear me in the back. You know, his speech is pathetic. So he was probably this not terribly attractive person to look at, and he couldn't hear him when he preached. Yeah, that's that gives me hope. Yeah, totally, man. <laughs> Can only get better. So, so, um, and 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 I think that for a lot of us speaks to the inheritance we've received in terms of what the faith is. We've now seen it, seen that it's been entangled in po political postures and assumptions uh and then a, and then in some cases a christian subculture that isn't driven by the text as much as it claims to love the bible more loves the idea of the bible or the theology yeah. of the bible yeah, rather than yeah the com the complexity of the text itself so so do you if paul were were running around today observing church life in uh, america what do you what are what are if you any come to mind? What would be some things you think he would go after? Oh boy. Uh, well, first of all, I think one of the things he would be uh, mystified by is the size of most of our churches. So, <laughs> That's uh, true. the churches that Paul would have known would have been as many people as you could fit in a living room, probably uh, 12, 15, 18. 25 people, if it's a big church. Yeah. Um, I think that if Paul saw the size of some of our churches, which might be something like 75 people or 85 or maybe 100 people, he'd be stunned at the size of those churches. Like, wow, like we got to split this up, maybe make some, uh, maybe make it a network of churches. Mm -hmm. um, to see the phenomenon that many of us are familiar with uh, of churches of 500, 12,000, I mean, it's like, that's so beyond, I think, anything he could conceive of. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, he'd be amazed at uh, the patterns that we've fallen into for a range of historical reasons, where church is a, a production. Hmm. You show up, uh, there, there's a, you, you watch this thing up front, hmm. and then you leave. Um, for, for Paul, uh, he imagined church life as family gathering centered around a common meal that would have taken uh, a while and that would have been uh, conducted um, uh, with intentional practices to make sure that everyone knows that we're all siblings and we, we all matter the same and we're all loved the same. Right. It's not a, it's uh, not a church of families. It's yes, church as. Totally. It's church as family. Church I as that from you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> take it take it anytime you can quote someone back their own their own stuff they're it. gonna agree i love it um let's see what else would he be amazed by i think he'd be stunned that there are in america white churches hmm. black churches hmm. uh hispanic churches um and uh on down the road 
I think that for, I know that for Paul, having read his letters for him, uh, communities of uh, the new creation, people of God are uh, communities that gather to perform and embody and uh, display uh, the international multi-ethnic uh, multiracial uh, people of God made up of male and female and rich and poor and from a, a variety of, of backgrounds that if we do, if we gather as these sort of um, homogenous groups, which is the baseline assumption of church growth, you know, ideology, if we gather in those ways, we, um, we basically gather as idolatrous um, communities. I think you'd be stunned. I don't think he would know what, what we're doing. Yeah. I think you'd say you're doing something completely not at all in tune with what I was talking about. Hmm. Um, I think also, I think you'd be stunned that we're reading his letters, that we know who he is. Hmm. I mean, you know, reading Acts, it's the craziest thing in the world. He's this, when you get to early, well, chapter 13, you get the statement, there were in Antioch, um, uh, this whole list of people. And then, and there was Saul. Yeah. Like there's like five or six people. I mean, Barnabas is the guy and then there's Niger and then there's Lucius. And then, and way down the list, there's this guy, Saul, this nerdy old Testament scholar that for the last (laughs) 10 years had been just doing nothing in Tarsus. Um, and then he becomes this uh, missionary. Mm -hmm. Uh, we know him as kind of like the guy. Oh yeah. And there's also Jesus. Um, I think yeah. he'd be amazed by that. I don't think he would know what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, uh, how do you think he'd be surprised about um, how some of his, his words have been used in the subculture? Yeah, that's great. First of all, I think if you, if, if you could just uh, resuscitate Paul for a bit and tell him, Hey, by the way, we've got 13 of your letters. I think the first thing that come to would come to his mind would be, Oh no, not Galatians. Um, <laughs> wow. Cause I think he would, uh, that text, if you read the um, history of reception very early, it fosters and orients the church's anti Jewish posture, hmm. uh, early persecution of Jews by Christians and the persecution of Jews throughout the history of the church, largely based on statements in Matthew, but also Galatians. Hmm. Um, on through, if you read Magnus Setterholm's book, um, Approaches to Paul, I think it's called, he traces the anti-Judaic and anti-Jewish impulse uh, through Augustine and then, you know, climaxing in Luther, but mm-hmm. then tragically uh, feeding and orienting a whole church culture, a whole Christian culture in Germany that, um, you know, did not really know what to do and sort of winked at, you know, the treatment of Jews in the middle of the last century and uh, fueled the Christian persecution of Jews in Europe uh, over the last 200 years. Um, Yeah, a lot of his quote-unquote anti-law statements and uh, in Galatians, I think, I I wonder what he would, uh, I I don't think it threatens inspiration at all to say that Paul was very hot when he wrote that letter or dictated (laughs) that letter. And um, in a different moment, he might have, considered a different response but that's mm. that's you know what we have um and those statements read outside of the polemical context in which they're written are tr- troublesome yeah they have to be explained yeah um let's see yeah I have, I have to think about that some other thoughts will come to mind later down the road well, i'm just but... thinking of i'm thinking of you know how like his his advice to Timothy has been weaponized against women. All right. The the slaves of some of his household codes yeah. have been cemented into like eternal yeah. <laughs> you know, eternal gender roles. Yep. That's uh, tragic. I think he'd be amazed by that because the way that I understand household codes in uh, Ephesians and Colossians, those are those are uh, pretty revolutionary um yeah. pieces. So you've got in the first century, uh, first century culture, you've got a number of household codes from the ancient world, mm-hmm. and they're Aristotle, all, right? Is like Aristotle's foremost. got one. Um, Plato. 
I'm not sure. There's a there's a number of others that are not coming to mind right now. But uh, political philosophers from the first century BCE all the way up to Aristotle, several centuries before him, um, they write in nearly the same way. And the way that they write is uh, the question they're asking is, what do we envision as the ideal culture, mm-hmm. the ideal city? Yeah, uh, which is how they envisioned the biggest political unit. And they said, we can't really talk about all, that's go- all that goes on with the city, but let's talk about the smallest social unit, the household. Mm-hmm. And they talked about households as uh, being constituted basically for the social honor and uh, yeah, the social honor of the, uh, the pater familias. And they talked about how he was to control his wife, how he was to control his children, and how he was to dominate his slaves. Um, so when Paul writes these household codes and begins, he has the three pairs behaving mutually, not for the mm-hmm. sake of Peter Familias, yes. uh, the household owner. And then he addresses the um, subservient, the socially weaker uh, member of each pair first. Uh, and then he gives responsibilities to each. And he says that they all have a common master, masters and slaves. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that is so revolutionary in the first century. Mm-hmm. Um, but we typically in our day read that as socially conservative and as sort of concretizing yeah. uh, the social form of the first century. We don't see its radicality in the first century and then think, how do we also embody radicality in our world? Um, I see I see Paul, and, and tell me if you think this is correct, but I see Paul on the one hand trying to downplay some of the more radical aspects of how Roman culture could be turned upside down by this and yet planting the seeds for its eventual overthrow. Yeah. Do do you think that's, is that a fair assessment of the household codes? In other words, he includes them to say, Hey, we're not, we're all for a well-ordered city Yeah, as reflected in a household. And yet as he does these, he's almost subverting the dominant paradigm. Is that, is that a good way to say that? Yeah. Uh, the way I think about it is that he um, does not threaten the structure of the of a culture, but he wants to go after its dynamics. Hmm. So, take the structure of a culture, uh, infuse it with gospel dynamics, and see how that's reordered. Because so if you slavery, just, yeah, slavery. I mean, it's a reality Philemon. in the ancient world. So, I mean, the first thing I would want to say is, um, if it's the case that Paul knew that we were. Um, that many of our church cultures were kind of oriented by suppression, oppression, domination of women and sort of control by males of females. I think he'd be horrified Hmm. uh, because his baseline understanding of new creation communities is that they're oriented by common flourishing, that every member is flourishing thoroughly in the community. It doesn't, um, the community doesn't function for the comfort of uh, a certain segment uh, or for one individual, but it, it is uh, given life by God so that all flourish together. Mm. Um, and then with regard to slavery, yes, yeah, slavery is a reality in the ancient world. And um, we have to keep in mind that uh, our, our, our contemporary notions of, of liberty or freedom have to be uh, sort of queried or you know, understood properly. Uh, it might be a bummer to say, yeah, Paul did not give slaves freedom in the ancient world, but you could also say this, Paul would not tolerate a household abandoning a slave. So to be, to be left unconnected uh, or to be left alienated from your community is to be just with no resources and um, just cast adrift in a society where you need to, you know, uh, hunt down food every day to survive. That's not a good situation. You want to be connected to a community. So it's more radical for Paul to say to masters uh, to treat them with care and respect. Don't uh, uh, you know? Don't dominate them or uh, you know, speak harshly. But remember that you have a common master. That's unprecedented in the ancient world. Right. Um, and with Philemon, I, I love Philemon. I love this letter. N.T. <laughs> um, uh, Wright interestingly starts uh, his book Paul in the Faithfulness of God with a huge long discussion of Philemon comparing it to uh, my brain is just dead this morning. That's all right. There's a, there's a, 
uh, an ancient your letter. Brain, your brain on 80% is better than most brains <laughs> at full power. So it's there's a, it'll come to me like this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> there's a, 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 a letter uh, written from uh, a nobleman to a fellow nobleman um, advocating for the fair treatment of a slave in the ancient world, right around Paul's time. Mm -hmm. And the reasoning is, the substructure of the reasoning is completely different mm -hmm. uh, to the substructure of Paul's reasoning. Um, Paul is not advocating for Philemon's freedom or release. That, um, that has precedent, okay, in the ancient world. That would be a noble thing to do, but it has precedent. What has no precedent is the, is the single command that Paul gives to Philemon in that whole letter, besides prepare for me a place. Um, the only command he gives to Philemon is welcome him. Hmm. Welcome him, which is to say in the first century, that's a powerful thing to do. Receive him as a dignitary. Come on. So this person, uh, in fact, in the book Colossians Remixed by hmm. Sylvia Kiesman and um, Brian Walsh, they write a fictional account uh, by Nympha of observing what happens when uh, Philemon, uh, when Onesimus uh, is carrying the letter, walking down the street, carrying the letter to the house, handing it to Philemon. Hmm. Philemon storms out. And it's like, how is this going to end? What's going to happen? And like, it's really awesome. But for Philemon to be exhorted by Paul, don't do what your culture is telling you to do to bring some strong reprimand, maybe even likely even death, because Philemon would be pressured to um, uphold the yeah. common, uh, um, uh, the honor codes and the feeling of his fellow noblemen. Uh, Towards him. Yes, slaves cannot do this to our class. You've That's got right. to send a message. And for him to instead treat uh, Onesimus as this dignitary, like he's honored to have him at the house. That is so absolutely radical. But <laughs> Philemon is far more radical than just freeing slaves. Mm -hmm. No, I love it. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's a, so it embodies letter. so it embodies again the the. I'm not overturning the system, but yeah. I'm I'm introducing gospel dynamics that will ultimately change it. Yeah, totally. Yep, absolutely. That are so subversive, uh, and are life giving. Yeah, it's easy for us in our time. This is one thing we've got to get our heads around is that uh, what it is to be alive in a liberal democratic culture. <laughs> and I don't mean, you know, capital L, capital D, liberal Democrats as a party system, but liberal democratic as basically Western culture mm -hmm. where every person has their own freedom and each person is basically uh, in pursuit of their own kind of social honor, building their own brand, doing their own thing yeah, without any constraints. Man. So our ultimate good is to have freedom to do what we want. That's right. not necessarily the case in the first century. You want to be connected. You want to belong. Um, so we want to read into the first century our values, but and they're deeply embedded, and we've got to understand what we're doing when we're doing that. How does Philippians 2 play against the kind of American uh, you know, self-fulfillment sort of ethic yeah, as it totally. as a, as it pertains to, I don't know, I mean, even some of the big cultural conversations we're having around race or gender or sexual abuse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been so influenced. I, I feel like I'm not saying anything new. I'm saying everything that Michael Gordon, Gorman has said, and I'm just saying it again. <laughs> I rip off everything I can find from him. He's, I, he's meant a lot to me, and uh, yeah. his work has meant a lot. And I agree with him in saying that Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is Paul's master story, that that's, um, that's basically Paul's impulse that orients all his thought everywhere else. All right. Remind us of what that, that's a so, creed, right? That's an early creed. Oh, it may, it may have been. Okay. Um, it seems like it, it may have been. There's no way to, to know that or not know it or to, to prove that, that it was or wasn't. Um, Paul uh, starts out by saying that, uh, uh, you know, talking about Jesus Christ, uh, who being God, uh, did not did not regard equality with God something to be uh, used for his own advantage, mm. but but rather emptied himself, so poured himself out, or spent himself, or uh, expended himself, and um, 
uh, took on humanity, went to the, uh, took on the form of a servant, went to the lowest place, even uh, to the place of uh, death on the cross. Um, so Jesus, having privileges, mm-hmm. sets those aside and acts, uh, d- does not do what you and I would do and what everyone else would do and what gods did in the ancient world. He does something completely unique. He, instead of exploiting for his own gain, I have some, I'm going to get more. Uh, I have some privileges and prerogatives. I'm going to have more uh, prerogatives and comforts. He pours himself out and goes to the absolute lowest place, uh, completely giving his life in obedience to the Father. And then uh, in verse 9, it's, it's this mess with a lot of my theology that I've <laughs> dispensed with. Verse 9 says, because he did that, hmm. because of this, because of this, God highly exalted him hmm. and uh, gave him the, the name which is above every name, which is a citation from Isaiah, about uh, Yahweh, where, right? where Yahweh uh, proclaims his own name and uh, says that at his name, every knee will bow. So the God of Israel, the creator God, the one true God, Yahweh, watches the life, the self-expanding life of Jesus and says about that life, that's me. Hmm. So Jesus does that to reveal the one true God and then all the commands throughout Philippians uh, basically are oriented by that narrative, hmm. that, that narrative of having privileges, not exploiting them, expending ourselves. And that is the manner in which, verses 12 and 13, we work out our own salvation. And that's the manner in which we have our life narratives married to the life narrative of Jesus, hmm. becoming Christ-like and thereby becoming godly. Mm-hmm. So, well, that being said, I, as a, a white man, um, I call myself a Christian, mm-hmm. and um, I want to know, how can I do that? Hmm. Um, how can I do that? How can I have, so the questions I ask myself are, all right, I've got some comforts and privileges. How do I do that in my marriage? Hmm. I've got comforts and privileges. How do I be Jesus oriented and, and cross shaped in my, uh, my parenting. Um, and that's, those are the, those are the questions I've learned to ask in my own inherited culture. But I also want, I also notice in most of Paul's letters, he's got, uh, inter-ethnic conversations. Yes. So I'm told in my wider culture, uh, there's this thing called white privilege. And whenever I hear, hear that talked about, uh, or whenever that's brought up, I notice among all other white males, they get very angry. They don't want to hear about that. I hear about that, and I'm like, talk to me. I want to know, where, what privileges do I have? Because if I can identify them, um, I can purposefully not exploit them uh, mm-hmm. for my own gain, but I can actually give them up and pursue ways of serving others. Mm-hmm. So this has affected my – I mean, this is – this drove me actually to um, have conversations with some of my female colleagues and, uh, you know, to say, look, uh, apparently as a man in this office setting, I've got privileges that you don't have. Can you talk to me about that? Cause I kind of don't see it. Hmm. And uh, you know, most of them have learned not to take those conversations initiated by men very seriously because men just get defensive typically when we have those conversations, but I've earned some trust. And so, um, I did a bunch of my own reading and also brought up, brought up to my colleagues some of these sorts of things and said, yeah, I read about this happening. Does this really happen in, when, when you're in a, a committee meeting or when you're gathered in a social environment or do you get comments like this? And they've told me stories. I mean, I've just learned, mm-hmm. ask people these kind of questions, you'll get mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. So um, I've asked questions. In fact, I'm, I'm having lunch with a female colleague today and I'm going to ask her, I've written it down. Um, she told me about a situation and I was like, I can't, I can't believe that happened. And she went to someone and said, this happened to me. And she was appalled by the response that she got. Now I'm such a dullard and I want to know, all right, what was this? What was the response you were looking for? Because if someone ever comes to me, I want to be ready. I want to have my imagination prepared to advocate for someone socially less privileged than I am. And this has affected my um, learning about my own culture racially uh, and learning about the history of African people on this continent. It's a very ugly history. 
uh, it's, it's a, it is a jaw dropping history. Um, this is 2019, 1619 was the year that, uh, Africans were first brought to this land by European, by white Europeans as slaves. So, um, I'm, I want, my history does not go back to slavery. It goes back to privilege. I mean, really a lot of privilege. Um, so I want as a privileged person to be saying this as much as I can. I don't preach often in churches, but I'm going to be preaching a couple times this year. And every time I am, I want to say this is the 400th anniversary of the arrival on these shores of enslaved Africans. Hmm. Not only their arrival, they were brought here by white Europeans. I want to say that and because I, I want that to weigh on me. And many of these white Europeans were the same people who, um, uh, when they first came here, brought missionaries with them, Christian missionaries mm. and enslaved Africans. So um, I, I have white privilege in the fact that I, uh, I, can, I can avoid that if I want to. I can, I can talk about really happy, fun things when I preach in churches. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I can afford to uh, live in a very nice neighborhood in, in my larger city, and I can afford to not learn about the experience of um, uh, black people in my city, which is not great. So, um, but as a Christian wanting to embody, um, as a Christian pursuing exaltation in the end, knowing that the only way to get there is through self-expenditure and humiliation with Christ. Mm. I want to be, I want to be identifying as many possible pathways that look like that as possible. Mm. So, and that's looked like opening up conversations with, um, uh, uh, uh colleagues who are people of color. Um, that looks like um, treating people that have a lower social station than I do with dignity. That looks like um, not exploiting the privileges that I do have mm. in a variety of ways. I'm just trying to think creatively because there are so many possibilities for me to do this. Mm. And what I, what I don't understand is in talking to fellow white people who claim to be Christian, when I bring up conversations like this, I get a lot of resistance like that's politically correct or that's politics you're bringing politics into the gospel <laughs> or you're bringing um, that's identity politics i mean there there are a range right. of there are a range of uh, uh, there's a, there's a whole language set that we have in our culture supplied by sources like fox news or um, various other media outlets um, uh, some a person like i'll just say this stuff uh, uh, Jordan Peterson has a lot of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. People like him, uh, who, who do not want to engage at this level and in this way, mm -hmm. uh, who sound to conservative white America as if they're sort of saying something that is so close to being Christian. Um, there's a whole language set that is supplied to us that we can use, like that's identity politics or that's uh, you're bringing politics into the Christian faith. All of those ways are saying, I don't want to have my life shaped by the cross. Mm. And so I've learned to pick that up. And I just respond by saying, I want to have my life shaped by the cross. I'm not interested in not being exalted in the end. Mm. So. Yeah. You had, you, you said something recently uh, at the event, it was resurrection power only gets poured out on crosses. Oh yeah. That, that, that's a, that, that'll tweet. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, man, that's my, that, um, so Philippians two, five through 11 and second Corinthians four, uh, we carry about daily the dying of Jesus in our bodies mm -hmm. so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in our bodies. So, um, yeah, the Christian culture in which I was raised was a, is a triumphalist. It's a victory oriented, um, culture. But we don't understand that um, the battle and uh, what victory looks like is all shaped by the cross. It's all Come shaped on. by loss. It's Come all on. shaped by surrender. And um, as an American, I was raised to understand that I have all these rights. And as a Christian, my initial act of Christian, uh, my initial act of, of uh, entering the Christian faith was to identify with the death of Christ. I died. So mm -hmm. all my rights are gone. Now, much of the rest of my Christian life is learning what I did when I did that. Mm -hmm. um, and 
the secret to this whole thing is that it's a pursuit of resurrection in the end and it's an enjoyment of resurrection power now. Mm-hmm. And the only way I enjoy resurrection power now is to get on my cross and to be cross-shaped thoroughly. So in my parenting, in my marriage, in my friendships, and in my pursuit of being Christian in my city, um, the cross drives all of that. Mm. <laughs> Boom. Bike drop. Why, why does Paul hate sex? Why does he hate sex? Why does sex? Paul hate sex? Yeah. He just, he's so anti-sex. Um, the historical Paul, I don't know what his attitude towards sex was. Uh, I imagine he was not the most attractive person. <laughs> See, there's hope. Having, having died once... I, uh, I mean, taking Acts 11 seriously, that Paul got stoned in Lystra, um, stoning in the first century uh, was not something you left half done, uh, half accomplished. They would have finished the job. And um, so, I mean, he probably went through life with bones, you know, protruding from his arms. I remember playing flag football once and a friend dove to pull someone's flag out and landed on his hands and mm. his, dislocated his elbow. Oh, and I remember running over to him and just looking at it, and my stomach turned. I imagine Paul walked into most of his churches looking like that or went to most cities looking like that, probably with also with a misshapen skull. So he probably wasn't terribly attractive. So I don't know what his, his historical, the historical Paul's attitude towards sex probably was something like just, I have no idea what that is. Um, I guess I would ask, well, what do you mean? Why, why do you say that? From First Corinthians? No, it, it's uh, I'm I'm just trying to identify common misunderstandings of Paul. Yeah. Um, so so Paul, you know, anti-woman, pro-slavery. Um, he hates gay people. Yeah. He you know he hates sex because he you know. Uh, so so I I hear this. Oh okay. I hear this from 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 people. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to just set you up for. Um, opportunities to sort of correct some okay. of those misapprehensions. So yeah, that was not that was a playful question. I think I first of all, that clear. that's what's sad is that comes from a misunderstanding of uh, the rhetorical character of First Corinthians. So when he says things like, um, "It's better for a man not to touch a woman. It's better for a man not to have sex with a woman," I think he's quoting, yeah, Corinthian slogans and then correcting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, in fact, not that I think that that's almost, that's obvious. I think to most New Testament scholars now that he's quoting slogans and then correcting them. Um, and what's interesting that, is that he's got in first Corinthians seven, he, um, pretty remarkably actually for his day, actually that's very remarkable. He exhorts people that are, um, um, taking on really ascetic, modes of life, he corrects that by talking about the mutuality of men and women, that Mm -hmm. the woman's body is not her own, it's her husband's. And the husband's body is not his own, it's his wife's. So there's this sort of mutual ownership, which is really unusual. It's not just the woman belongs to the man, we're done. Yeah. Um, And then in 1 Timothy, uh, he condemns people who uh, advocate uh, not getting married and so I think uh, it's just too easy to identify Paul as this misogynist. Um, now, I just will say First Timothy 2 with regard to women. Um, women being silent in the yeah, church. It is just an absolute mystery to me. I think um, there are so many tangled things going on in that passage that to just pull one thing out and make it normative for all time is just crazy. But I think in some ways, Paul was a, a product of his time, but in other ways, I think also he is um, saying some things that are pretty revolutionary. Uh, so can I, can I stop yeah, you there? Go ahead. Can I stop you there, Tim? How do you sift and sort? Because you, t- you take the LGBTQ conversation and they'll say, well, yeah, Romans, that was, that was Paul just being a product of his time. Yeah. Um, and, and yet I know many people who would say, no, 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 that's actually, you know, he's, he's, he's going to Genesis there. And then yeah. you're like, well, but in Timothy, he goes to Genesis too. Yeah. 
Uh, right. He goes to Genesis also. And so, yeah. so how, how do we, cause I, cause I'm, I'm with you in the sense of my view of inspiration allows for a lot of complexity in the biblical characters and the fact that in the old Testament scriptures, you have, you know, windows of, uh, that let rain in and a firmament and all those things. And that God's clearly, um, using the worldview of the yeah. day yeah. without endorsing as the utter truth forever. Yeah. How, how do you sift and sort in, in Paul that way? Um, so using those two examples, that would be yeah. that would be a, a big question I'd have because what I'm uh, what I'm super interested in is how you how should people approach Paul with we have so many disenchanted either former Christians or yeah. you know they they've been hurt by church and they've seen these texts weaponized. And so how do we encourage them to go back and give them another hearing? Yeah. And so this idea that, hey, you know, Paul could have been reflecting rabbinic thought when he references Adam and Eve there in, in 1 Timothy 2. And yeah. maybe that's a product of his time. I know I'm over-asking the question, but I'm trying to hone it yeah. uh, to give you something to react to. Yeah, for me, um, uh, well, let me just say by contrast what, what I have found not helpful. Um, <laughs> In my, in my inherited culture of conservative evangelicalism, in answer to the question, uh, where is their safety? Or, or actually, let me take a step further back from that. Um, partly, this is the, the problem of being Protestant. That is, we do not have an ecclesiastical hierarchy to uh, govern our readings of Scripture. Yep. Um, so since the Reformation and since the arrival of Christianity in America, it's basically do whatever you want, um, form these communities however you like. Mm -hmm. And uh, th there's this illusion of kind of traditional Christian readings or traditional Christian ways, because once you're Protestant, it's kind of like, you know, whatever community you're formed, the most powerful voices in the room govern how scripture is handled. Yeah, um, yep, that's for sure. And then once we say, if we ask the question in our context, well, what governs the reading of scripture to give us assured readings or assured interpretations or the the appropriate way forward. Um, there's probably better answers to this, but I, what I have found to be an unhelpful answer is uh, solid hermeneutics. Like right, the if, process. If, yes, if we just basically, uh, you know, appeal to a certain mechanism of interpretation, we're there, mm -hmm. which is a thoroughly modernist uh, way of dealing with this. Yeah. Um, Boy, that's a big deal. What you just said. That is a huge deal. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. I just I want to mark that though. Unhelpful because again, that keeps the control in the hands of the most powerful voices. The thing to me is um, what I have found most helpful is to think in terms of uh, what most fruitfully and faithfully brings about a community uh, of new creation where there is, uh, where there are, where there are no, where there are no, can't talk where there's no one on the margins, where everybody is included and welcomed, uh, where the community looks like, takes the shape of the cross and where Christ is exalted uh, and where, the, where, where community members all feel uh, fully uh, dignified. Now that feels, I think, to many people in a conservative Christian environment, I, I can just hear my heritage. I, I know. I, that I feels like, well, well that's, that's all loosey-goosey. That doesn't leave you anywhere. Right. But uh, again, I would appeal to Paul's text where he is exhorting most of his communities to, um, uh, to discern the will of the Lord, to, to think together, to have the same mind and, and navigate a way forward under the Lordship of Christ. And it's often open-ended. He gives these broad commands and expects communities to discern together what this is going to look like. So we're improvising. Total, totally. Every day. Um, in, this, in this place... In this time, what's it going to look like? And the whole, the whole yeah, process. But what if we're wrong? But what if we're wrong? If we are wrong, that moment. I said this to you right before we started this. The moment of being wrong holds such immense promise for enjoying more of the goodness of God through repentance. There's, it's never a bad day in the kingdom. For a kingdom community, you can't go wrong. This, this, a kingdom community is a kingdom community that has already given up everything and that has already been assured everything. Hmm. Okay. So hmm. nobody can take anything from them. 
um, nobody could give anything to them to make them uh, something that uh, you know they, they're being coerced to be. And they can't get it wrong because their community claimed for no other reason than God loves them. Come on. So, so who, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but, but, but it the does, stakes so, are so low. So, I mean, that, that's, how, that's the general way I would see this. Well, except, uh, except yeah. the Christians got killed for exercising the Lord's Supper wrong. So that's some, yes. th- those, those seem like some relatively high stakes. Yeah. So gay would people say would way. say, gay people would say, dude, are you freaking kidding me? They're massive stakes. If you're just, and again, I'm playing devil's yeah, advocate. No, I mean, I'm, thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, well, no, no, I'm not hoping. I'm, I'm anticipating some uh, rejoinders. Um, that that no there are there are there there fear like they it feels like there are bigger states than what you're saying. Yeah, I think we have to query those feelings. Okay. Why do we feel the stakes are so high? Um, a lot of us are again we go back to what what Paul envisioned churches to be these um, sort of uh, ad hoc communities brought together by the Spirit uh, and the communities of about 20, 25 people that get together for mutual care, rejoicing fellowship. Um, once we have an institution that's 500 people and we have a building and parking lots and insurance plans for staff and phone banks and cell phone plans, we have all this apparatus that we've built mm-hmm. into sort of like this corporate structure that, um, that has to survive. Right. Yes. The stakes will feel that they are high. But what, what I see is that that is a community that has gotten off of its cross and their crosses and have established something that is powerful and strong and must be protected. Hmm. Anytime, anytime you've got something powerful and strong, you've got to make rules and you've got to own it. And you have to, you have to have predictable, predictable community life and you hmm. have to have guaranteed outcomes and you, you can't have, you got to have killer children's ministry, man. Yeah. You got to have, uh, you know, I just was taking my walk this morning, walked past several churches. You've got to have an awesome VBS program. Yes. Uh, you've got to have this whole uh, structure that offers people what they want. And if you don't give them what they want, you know that there's going to be a certain segment of that church that wants moral clarity. We want clarity yes. on these issues. Yes. You, you can't not give that to them or else, you know, um, giving units will leave. <laughs> right. Basically, income will go down, so you won't do it. Right. Um, but if you have this community that's gathered around the cross, the stakes are always super low hmm. uh, in one sense. The stakes are also always super high in another sense when it comes to serving this, uh, this Lord who puts his arms around and identifies with the marginalized. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the Lord's Supper passage, 1 Corinthians 11, um, if you just took... Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, and made those <laughs> two texts that you just studied, talked yeah. about, preached on for a year. Yeah. It would be amazing how that would transform community life. Yeah. Because in that 1 Corinthians 11 passage, you've got wealthier Christians uh, eating the Lord's Supper in a way that they're shutting out uh, less socially advantaged Christians yep. and eating basically a meal that looks like its surrounding culture. They're celebrating rich with rich. Once there are leftovers, then give it to the poor. That's a Corinthian move. That's not a Christian move. Right. So in the same way, we've got to ask ourselves and our culture, what are our American moves? What's your, what's the Columbus move? What's the Grand Rapids move? What's the Mm -hmm. LA Mm -hmm. move? Whatever. Yeah. And one of those, uh, one of those moves that we have just to get around to your question is um, in a conservative Christian environment, where uh, genitals are the center of everything. <laughs> um, sex is such a massive issue. Yeah, uh, I told you about that Family Values book, yep. Family Values and the Rise of the Christian Right. I think everybody should read that. Oh, it's ordered, baby. Um, this, this feeling that sex, um, sex roles, gender roles, sexual behavior, a well-ordered family life, that that's somehow tied to the cosmic structure of things. Yes. It's so, it's one of these unexamined central impulses of the conservative Christian culture. Yeah. Um, And so when it comes to dealing with LGBTQ uh, plus folks, we just see them as either irredeemable or they have all this pressure put on them to change and conform to our expectations. They're, Mm -hmm. They're so far outside of what's what. 
when you start reading the Gospels, though, um, uh, you see Jesus constantly hanging out with these people. You see Jesus going to these people. Um, actually, when it comes to Paul, this is, I think, the scandalous character of Romans, um, hmm. where you've got one group. I think, I think Paul in Romans 1 is baiting. He's, he's setting up the yeah. group that wants to judge another group. Yeah. So he, yeah. he just loads up all <laughs> these sins and then he wants to turn on them and say, that's actually you. Yeah. So that, yeah. I think rhetorically Romans one is the worst place to go uh, to, I, to find material to judge people because <laughs> that Paul is setting up people who want to judge people. Right now. Um, uh, I also happen to think that um, uh same gender erotic relations is outside of God's intention for humanity. Um, but as we said before, uh, in my opinion, um, in my opinion, uh, Christians, modern American Christians are some of the last people who ought to say that out loud. Hmm. Um, because the gospel call to LGBTQ plus folks, in, in my opinion, is going to call them to a long, uh, difficult road of discipleship that they need um, healthy and flourishing community life uh, to help them navigate that. And most of our churches are simply not, are not embodying healthy community life. I mean, they, for, for any of us, uh, <laughs> for, for, you know, folks that are just in privileged positions, um, they're not providing that kind of community life for single people, for divorced people, uh, let alone for people who are, um, trying to navigate their sexual identities in a, in a very hotly contested culture. Mm -hmm. um, and the identity of the church in Romans is that, in, in all of Paul's letters and in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, is that it is a community of hospitality mm -hmm. um, where we go to people who are other than us and we welcome them in as dignitaries in the expectation of turning them into our friends. Um, with with no expectation that they're going to change and become like us. Ooh, now hold on. Ooh, now that now. Ooh. All right. So let's say because I'd love to um, hear because I have I have I have thoughts and I love checking them against someone much smarter. Um, you've got a crew of people, and I've I've met some that bear the unmistakable fruit of being disciples of Jesus, who have have not chosen to be gay and who have found uh, fulfillment in same-sex marriage um, and they would say hey here's here's my hermeneutic and here's my treatment of these texts and I don't think you know Paul or any of these people are kind of aware of what we know now does how so so because when I hear hospitality, I always I always feel like that could be a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. On the one hand, I know many churches that would say, "Hey, we welcome everybody." Yeah. Um, but but smuggled in there is 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 a sting, you know. Right. If you're if you participate in the community deeply enough, right? Um, that hey, you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z if you're doing X, Y, or Z. Um. Or there's the more robust, you know, sort of table fellowship view of hospitality where I'm extending status and kinship and honor. I'm sharing those things simply in virtue of sharing a meal with them, regardless of whether or not they've repented. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm assuming you mean the latter, yeah. correct? Sure. So how, so, so how do we create hospitality for people who are coming in now saying, hey, I, I think the Bible doesn't forbid this, um, you know, this uh, faithful, long-term, monogamous, committed, now recognized legally, you know, relationship that we have to each other. Yeah. What's hospitality look like in that situation? If we're, if, if you or I or whoever is operating from the, well, we don't see that as a proper expression. Uh, what that looks like for me personally is, um, is friendship, mutuality. I mean, I want to get to know, um, I want to get to know their story. I want to hear their story. I want to, I want to, um, understand other people as much as possible. Um, I want to live fully into the command of Jesus in Mark nine, um, or the depiction of him, uh, to welcome these 
to welcome people who are marginalized because when you welcome them, you welcome me. So I want, my aim is to get more Jesus into my life and my community. So I want to, I want to offer table fellowship, hospitality, welcome. I, want, I just want to get to know, I want to welcome into my life people who are socially marginalized because that's, that holds the promise for me of more Jesus and more God. Um, and I just feel like I want to develop friendships with, um, with as many people as I can. To me, it's a very, it's largely, it, it's tremendously uncomplicated um, because I'm not, um, what complicates a lot of this for me is um, churches with power and authority and cultural sway, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say not uh, non-cruciform churches um, and maybe non-Christian churches, I don't know. But churches that have cultural power are looked to to, to, to weigh in on stuff mm-hmm. or, or we have staffs or we have uh, ministries and, and, and can they do this and can, who can do this? And uh, I think we should reconsider all these questions. Mm. Should churches perform weddings? Mm. Should, pe- should we just say, look, we're, we're not, we don't feel right in our church um, marrying people who are uh, in this kind of relationship? If the answer is yes, then let's say, well, we're not marrying anybody. Go to the local magistrate and you can be part of this community. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would rather, I would rather say uh, we are captured into the story of God redeeming his world. And what that looks like in this community is um, mutual rejoicing, mutual care, lifting up the name of Jesus, and, um, off, and celebrating hospitality just as Christ has welcomed us. We're welcoming one another. That's, mm-hmm. that's the non-negotiable. That, mm-hmm. To me, that, mm-hmm. that's the thing that is a bigger issue than what do people do with their genitals. That's not, that's not the big deal to me. Yeah. Um, America says that's the thing. I mean, the big yeah. thing is that. Yeah. Um, the big thing for me is when people don't offer hospitality, God kills Christians. Okay? <laughs> so he's killing Christians for not offering hospitality. <laughs> oh, in First Corinthians 11. You know what yep. I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, you know, I, I see the commands in scripture to not do this, but it's like, yeah, don't do that. And that's not, it's not unserious, but right. hospitality, um, which is, you know, one of the fundamental acts, that's one of the first things you find in the narrative of Genesis with Abraham and mm-hmm. the, uh, the three visitors. That's to me, the non-negotiable. And what um, I feel that there's such a, a lack of solid, tested Christian wisdom when it comes to this whole area, I'd rather, I'd rather um, bear the burden of, of waiting on the Lord to find and discern some ways forward that we can uh, counsel or that we can advocate uh, that people adopt or that I, th- I feel like the Christian church has done too little listening to mm. stories uh, mm. from gay couples or lesbian couples or transgender folks. We just, we haven't done enough listening to discern um, what is the gospel word for these people. We know that it will look like hospitality. We'll know that it will look like rest, like shalom, like relief from, from um, it will look like uh, the gospel word that we bring to them will look like we will bear your burdens with you. Mm. So those, to me, those are all the non-negotiables. The other stuff to me, it's like, I mean, we talked about Nate Collins's book that, that blew yeah. my mind. It's like, there, there's some creative ways of navigating uh, some of these complexities with Christian faithfulness, but we're just not talking about them because we've already identified those enemies, that, you know, those people are our enemies. Let's go right. get them. Let's come up with answers yeah. to throw at them. And none Your of statement. that. Yeah, let's write a statement. I mean, what is that? That's such a, that's such a surrender of being Christian to my mind. Ooh. Like saying being Christian is too difficult. It involves too much complexity and bearing with and long-term ambiguity Let's go to safety, which feels like what my conception of moral clarity. Yeah. Dang. Tim, where where can people find material? Um, I know you you used to be a more frequent blogger, but there's still some great stuff out there. Where where are you online if people want to track you? Uh that's a good question. <laughs> I um yeah, my blog, uh I'm not it's been about three or four years since I've been active and I, I always think I should do that more. I got to get back into it, but I just, I don't know. No, no, no. Um, there's, 
if but you there's Google, great, but there's great stuff there. Yeah, I mean, that's the. I, I've I've left it up there, and that's that's uh, for anybody to look into. Um, the last uh, five years or so, I I'm I'm coming to the conclusion of two books: uh, a commentary on Mark's Gospel, in the Story of God series, and then this book on on Paul as a pastor. And I've just that's been consuming most of my time. Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't done a lot of other writing. And then if you, if you just search online, GRTS SoundCloud, um, there's a bunch of, uh, teaching that I've done at the seminary that can be found there in, nice. on, in audio files. Um, nice. there's a series I, I did on Mark on Ephesians, Galatians, Paul's prison letters, and some other talks I've given on, um, on, uh, issues of diversity. Hmm. Um, that kind of stuff perfect yeah. that's exactly what I was looking for Tim I cannot thank you enough for your time today I mean, man seriously. that's awesome I th- I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit and uh, it's been just fun to chat so there you have it Mike Geary Tim Gombas um, some of the stuff that that we covered I, I, he had covered with with Bonnie in the event in, in Orange County, and I heard it, and I had to make sure he covered it. Like that Philippians bit that he did there was—it's just, yeah. oh my goodness, so such a great framing of so many cultural issues. So, anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're gonna, Lord willing, spend some more time with him, and uh, and so friends, thank you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine His face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you. And uh, today, may he give us peace. So until next time, friends, thank you so much.